You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. Hello, my name is Justin Schieber. Um, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we were on vacation in the Pacific Northwest, visiting some friends and getting some hiking in at the national parks. We had an absolute blast. I was actually able to meet up with a longtime friend who I had only ever known online. Uh, he's a longtime fan of the show and of Reasonable Doubts. Thank you, Brandon, so much for showing us around Portland. And again, thanks for the hat. I had actually posted about this trip on Twitter, and Jeff Lauder of infidels.org and the Secular Outpost uh, messaged me and suggested that we go for a hike around the greater Seattle area. So we did. We ended up recording an interview as well, because it was outside, Yeah, the wind was an issue. So there are parts of the interview that are a bit difficult to hear, but I thought that the conversation was interesting and wide-ranging, and I thought that you would appreciate it. So um, without further delay, this is my interview with Jeffrey J. Lauder. I am uh, sitting here with uh, Jeffrey J. Lauder wanted to see if I could ask you a few questions. Um, so Jeff, were you raised religious? Yeah, you I were. was. And uh, I guess, yeah, what kind of got you more broadly into philosophy, philosophy of religion? Uh, what kind of, what's that story like? Um, well, as I remember it in high school, I got really interested in the uh, evolution uh, versus creationism debate. Yep, yep. And, um, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to take a class in philosophy in high school. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually studied uh, a book by Bertrand Russell called The Problems of Philosophy. Yes. Uh, and so that, that got me really interested. We read some other stuff as well. But um, that's, that's what got me interested in philosophy. And then I remember... Um, staying in touch with that teacher and uh, even after I graduated from high school and I th- I believe he was the te- the person who gifted me a copy of the the writings of Bertrand Russell and if you look at the table of contents of that book it um, it breaks it out into different philosophical specialties and mm-hmm. one of them the section was something like you know Bertrand Russell the philosopher of religion or just the philosophy of religion and that was, I think, the first time I became aware that the philosophy of religion was a thing. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, wow, there, there are people who just do that. Um, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you were the co-founder of infidels.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that come about? <laughs> I don't remember how I met him, but somehow I became acquainted with a... Uh, a guy named Brett Lemoyne, who at that time was a, um, I think he was a senior majoring in philosophy at Texas A&M, and mm-hmm. then I think he he did his grad school at Texas A&M as well. But um, I had um, started reaching out to various groups and individuals uh, about getting their material on the internet. And um, one of the earliest people that I remember working with was a, a former Church of Christ minister named Farrell Till, mm. who edited a periodical called The Skeptical Review, which was devoted to biblical inerrancy. And so I ended up hosting The Skeptical Review on the site. But in order to host it, 
I needed I needed a real server. You know, my student homepage at the university I, I was at was not uh, a good option. Mm-hmm. And um, so Brett set up a server on the Texas A&M network. And, um, you know, that lasted for a short amount of time, maybe a year. But eventually someone complained that, you know, this... Uh, what they thought was this big organization, but it was really just a couple of guys, um, you know, was being hosted on, you know, uh, taxpayer uh, supported network. Sure. And so then we were like, yeah, yeah that's a good point. And so um, we went and found a commercial ISP. But I mean, that that's how it started. And, um, you know, we kicked around names for the organization and um, I I settled on Internet Infidels just because I like the alliteration. Mm -hmm. The name of the organization um, early on became a sticking point with in in my interactions with William Lane Craig because he took it far more seriously than I did. I probably in my file cabinet somewhere still have a letter that he sent me. Um, because I was trying to convince him to let me host the entire debate transcript of his debate with Corey Washington, ironically enough, at the University of Washington. That mm-hmm. had happened in 1995, the year I graduated from, from college. And um, I had been told by the organizers of that debate at Campus Crusade for Christ at UW that it would be fine if I were to you know, create a transcript. And so I created the transcript, which... If you've ever tried to transcribe a two-hour debate, is <laughs> hugely time-consuming. Yeah, um, a lot of stop, rewind, play. What did he say? Stop, rewind, play. And so I created this transcript, and um, and then I sent it to Craig and asked him to to proof it. And um, this is not going to do his response justice, but it was basically. Whoa, 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 whoa. What the heck are you doing? It appears you're appearing a transcript for publication. I never gave you permission to do this. And I'm like, uh oh. And so then, um, you know, I explained to him that I'd been, you know, given the okay by the organizers at UW. Yeah. And which I guess they shouldn't have done. Um, or maybe the, I, I don't know who owned the rights. Um, I, I was under the impression since they sponsored it, they actually owned the rights, but yeah. I don't know if they ever discuss that with Craig or whatever. So Craig's like, um, you know, he says, okay, I'm fine with having the transcript. It's just, I don't want it on your website. And I'm like, well, why? I did all the work. And he said, you know, because, um, you know, look at the name, uh, infidels. And I'm like, yeah. And I'd have to go find the letter, but (laughs) the the gist of it was something like, you know, um, you know, an infidel is someone who mocks God or something. And, um, that, those aren't his exact words, but that yeah. was kind of the gist. And I'm like, that is not what we meant at all. It's very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to reclaim a word that's been, no pun intended, demonized. And, um, you know, sort of like how, um, uh, you know, homosexuals uh, reclaimed or uh, queer people have reclaimed the word queer. That used to be sort right. of a pejorative slur. My thinking was, well, we'll just reclaim the word infidel. Right. Um, which, you know, from a, a PR perspective, I consider just as a side note to be vastly superior to you know Daniel Dennett's idea to call free thinkers brights. So <laughs> yeah. what what does that mean <laughs> that you know that religious people are dims? I mean right, that that's right. just kind of an insult. Whereas I thought the word infidel was just kind of a playful thing, especially because it went after the word internet. But so there's like this whole history now that's between Craig and I 
over the word internet infidels. And so he's always had a problem with that. And I just, I tweeted about this last week. I just found something on his website from a few years ago where he referred to internet infidels, but used lowercase. So, um, and the way he did it was kind of a slur. Mm. And so maybe to be charitable to Craig, he deliberately did not capitalize it to make, to subtly make a distinction between internet infidels, the group with capital letters Mm -hmm. versus lowercase internet infidels, just as a, another way of saying online atheists. But then if that's in fact what he's doing, that just gets back to my original point to him in 1995 right. <laughs> which was when we call ourselves the internet infidels it's just we're a bunch of atheists yeah. on the internet it's it's nothing it's not about mockery right and um you know if i have any kind of an online reputation at all it's as someone who generally doesn't engage in mockery and ridicule in fact i've been ridiculed by um fellow atheists because of my stance on ridicule. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, I generally don't do it. So it's like of all the people for William yeah. Craig to take up that issue with. Uniquely I, unfair. I, 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 am, <laughs> I, am, I am not the guy because yeah. it's not about mockery. I'll have to go see if I can find that letter. And, um, <laughs> but um, although I can't post it because I think that would be, you know, a breach of implied sure. confidentiality. That was between the two of us. But that was, I mean, that was the gist, though, was that, you know, he... He, he read into that name something that just that wasn't there that wasn't the intent that's yeah. not what we understood by the term um, so I thought it was kind of an unfair criticism but um, I guess uh, to sort of put a bow tie on that point um, uh, in fairness to Craig he did allow the transcript to be published and so uh, as a compromise his comments went on his website and the atheist debater uh, Corey Washington's comments went online I gotcha okay um, so you've, uh, in your work, you've enthusiastically promoted the work of Paul Draper. Yeah. Um, kind of jokingly referring your, to yourself as Draper's bulldog. Mm-hmm. Um, so before discussing some of Draper's contributions to like philosophy of religion, what are some of the qualities that you think make Draper an outstanding philosopher of religion? Well, um, before I answer that, I first need mm-hmm. to talk about why I think Richard Swinburne is an outstanding philosopher yes. of religion because Perfectly they're connected. <laughs> So when I was attending Seattle Pacific University, which is a, a Christian university, Free Methodist specifically, mm-hmm. um, I remember in the bookstore that they had some philosophy of religion books. And one of them was Swinburne's Trilogy. Another one was a book by the philosopher Jonathan Kvanvig called The Problem of Hell. And then there was an anthology edited by the Adams, uh, Robert and Marilyn McCord yes. Adams, yeah. on The Problem of Evil. And interestingly enough, if I if I remember correctly in that anthology, Marilyn Adams took some shots at Craig on something he'd said in relation to the problem of evil. Mm. But so I, I bought these five books, which is a, you know, a college student living in poverty was quite an investment. Right, but right. Um, when I um, when I read Swinburne, um, I completed I didn't actually I don't know why I did this. It's kind of dumb. I, I didn't fill out the paperwork to get the minor uh, put on my diploma, but I completed all the paperwork for a minor in mathematics. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure if I wrote the college today, I could retroactively get awarded. Anyway, <laughs> I took a lot of college math, uh, including probability and statistics. And when I read Swinburne, one of the things that immediately stood out to me was here's a guy who gets it because at that time in the you know in the early 90s, um, my experience of uh, 
engaging with theists, not professional philosophers. I was just a little college student, but, you know, just talking to people at, at my college and reading people like Josh McDowell and Cliff Neckley and um, yeah. Ravi Zacharias or whoever I would have been reading at that time um, was that um, I always felt like they, they didn't really come to terms with the fact that they had a burden of proof as a theist. And when I read Swinburne, I thought, oh my gosh, yeah. this guy gets it. First of all, he absolutely accepts the fact that he has a burden of proof. And secondly, he's wicked smart. He knows, um, he knows Bayes' theorem. And um, he's applying Bayes' theorem to a topic that I had never even considered to be relevant. Because right. when, you, when you study statistics in college... Um, they'll use something called the frequentist interpretation of probability or the classical theory of probability, which says if you have a, you know, a fair die and you roll it, the chance of any one side landing is one, one out of six. Mm -hmm. um, you don't really spend, at least I didn't in my classes, we didn't really do anything with Bayesian uh, probability. Um, I don't even remember learning um, uh, the subjective or epistemic yeah. or Bayesian, yeah. you know, theories of probability. And so reading Swinburne, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is a genius. <laughs> and so I didn't, I wasn't persuaded by his arguments, but what, what, um, reading his book did do for me was, I mean, I already, I was already of the belief that you could be intelligent and be a theist, but, um, what Swinburne did for me was you could be intelligent and be fully familiar with the philosophy of religion yeah. and, and be a theist giving, you know, legitimate, very serious arguments. Uh, they're not coercive. It's not like if you understand the argument, you have to agree with them. Yeah. But um, I thought, wow, um, this is really amazing. So how does this connect with Paul Draper? Well, I, I know from things that Draper has said and has written that Draper had a, a similar experience. Um, I think he wrote once that it was when he, um, yeah, he wrote this in an essay that was, it was kind of like a festriff for, for Swinburne. It wasn't mm -hmm. officially one, but I think it was published about five years ago. Um, it was something like, I want to say Reason and Religion Themes from Richard Swinburne. It's an edited anthology published by Oxford University Press. But yeah. at the beginning of Draper's cha chapter, he says that he remembers when he first read... Um, he, he remembers when he first read um, uh, 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 Swinburne in uh, graduate school. And, um, you know, it was an eye-opening experience. And so he had, he had a similar experience as me. The difference is... Draper was in graduate school studying philosophy, whereas I was just, you know, uh, an undergrad sure. and not studying philosophy. And um, and so, you know, for him to say that carried a lot of weight. But I discovered Draper in um, 1997 or 1998. I watched, I, I purchased the videotape of, I mean, this is back in the 90s, okay, so I'm sure people are laughing who listen to this now, especially people who, who are like 20 years old or less. But back then, you know, uh, you weren't streaming on YouTube. Uh, there weren't Blu-rays. There weren't DVDs. I purchased a <gasps> VHS tape. So I, I watched the VHS uh, uh, tape of the debate between William Lane Craig and Paul Draper yeah. at West Point, the United States Military Academy in New York. And it was actually moderated by Louis Poyman, um, a well-known um, 
well, now he's deceased, but he's a well-known philosopher of ethics. Mm. And, um, and so I watched that debate, and listening to Draper speak, I had the same kind of experience I had reading Swinburne. Yeah. Um, but because I was, um, because I was um, much more closely aligned with Draper than I was with Swinburne, um, it was almost a quasi-religious experience. <laughs> um, and I know that sounds kind of hokey, sure, but let me explain sure. what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, because, again, he's using Bayes, you know, Bayes' theorem and Bayesian logic, but he's doing it in a way to explain things that I agree with, and, and he made them more powerful. And then he also had arguments that I just never even considered. Mm. That was the first time I'd heard an argument from mind-brain dependence yes. against theism. And um, uh, I don't really know how to do... I don't know how to do it justice in terms of describing my experience, but it wasn't like, you know, I, 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 I finished watching the debate, the tape, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's it. You know, um, I, I've heard a, you know, a, a secular revelation, and, and therefore naturalism is true. It wasn't that. It was more just, wow, there's a really robust case. Yeah. And it was so different from everything that was available in the 90s. Because if you go back in time... You know, Craig was doing his debates even back then. What were the debates that uh, were available back in the 90s? Either on audio cassette. Again, we're talking the 90s, so people laugh. There were no MP3s. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, audio cassette, VHS type, or books, they were all terrible. Um, There was the debate between William Lane Craig and Frank Zindler. Craig Mm, mopped the floor, and I just did a a YouTube video on that. There was the, you know, infamous debate between Greg Bonson and, and Gordon Stein, and Gordon Stein did terrible, and I'm, I'm doing an entire series of YouTube videos reviewing that debate. Um, but, you know, I could go on and on and on, but sure. for, for basically all of the debates that involved wh- whoever the atheist was, uh, there was a, a, a debate that most people haven't heard of between, uh, Tom, I think his first name was Thomas, Thomas Warren and Antony Flew on God's Existence, um, I think there was a debate between Terry Neath and Anthony Flew. Um, there was um, JJ, J, what was it? JJ Smart or JJC Smart? I can't remember who he debated. I think there's a second edition of that debate out now. But mm. um, all of those debates. Uh, oh, and then there was you know Kai Nielsen's debates, and all of them were just terrible. And so um, uh, and so when I when I listened to that debate with Draper, um, it was a combination of, you know, using inductive logic, Bayesian confirmation theory, um, him as a person, because he's just a very nice guy. He's a gentleman. He's very humble. Um, He has a very likable personality. Or if I were a Christian apologist, say, at Biola University, I would say he's winsome for Christ. But um, (laughs) he's just, you know, he's he's just a very, he's a very nice guy. And so that actually led me to organizing a debate uh, between him and Doug Guyvette at Biola University. Yes. Um, The debate took place at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And Paul Draper stayed at my house. And... um, and so um, that was kind of, you know, the beginning of, you know, what's turned into a, you know, a lifelong uh, friendship. Um, but, you know, I've always appreciated um, how open-minded he is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased because I, I've 
chosen to you know nickname myself Draper's Bulldog, but I've found that everything he writes on, he's always right. Um, you know, uh, I, uh, I haven't I haven't found a case where I said, oh, Draper made a mistake. I've made mistakes. Mm-hmm. Lots of people make mistakes, but when he writes on the philosophy of religion, he, he I mean, he's just um, he he's always right. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what, what to add on to that. Yeah, there you go. Um, so as, as you mentioned, Draper's approach, you know, employs among other things, confirmation theory, abductive Humean style arguments. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of go over, I guess, specifically with the Humean style argument, what, what that argument style is mm-hmm. and the benefits of it in this context? So it's interesting because as part of my um, YouTube video series on the, the Bonson-Stein debate, yeah. I, I'm currently working on uh, the video where I review the opening statement by Gordon Stein. Mm-hmm. And one of the statements that Gordon Stein makes, which also came up in the Craig Zindler debate made by Frank Zindler, is the idea that you can't prove a, a negative. And so um, this will be made clear with visual aids when I when I release my video. Sure. But I actually give I, I go down into the weeds on exactly um, you know the different types of categorical propositions. So there are universal affirmatives and particular affirmatives. There are universal negatives, and there are particular negatives. And um, uh, Stein made the argument that you can't prove a universal negative, and um, and so I'm like, okay, I, I need to put this to bed once and for all. Because I actually wrote an article on this back in 1998. It's still up on the secular web. It's called, Is a Proof of the Non-Existence of God Possible? But at a very simple level, there are two ways to prove that something doesn't exist. The first way is to prove that it involves a contradiction. So um, uh, I don't have to go uh, look at every square inch of the earth to empirically verify that there are no married bachelors because the concept of a married bachelor is a contradiction. Um, If you're married, you're not a bachelor, and if you're a bachelor, you're not married. So you can't be both at the same time, therefore that doesn't exist. The other way, um, and so I call those kind of arguments, this is is a Jeffism, this is not standard terminology, uh, I call those impossibility arguments. I think Theodore Drange, the philosopher, calls them incompatible properties arguments. Other people will talk about logical arguments, like logical arguments from evil. So the contradiction could be in the concept itself, or there could be a contradiction between the thing that's said to exist and some fact we know to be true. So, for example, J.L. Mackey's famous argument from evil is called a logical argument from evil because it says that there's a logical contradiction between the existence of God and the existence of evil. I have, just as a total side note, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, I hate the name logical argument from evil. Mm -hmm. Why do I hate that? Because I think it sounds funny. If you talk to the average person who doesn't think about philosophy and you say, well, I'm going to defend a logical argument from evil, I would think the average person's reaction would be as opposed to what, the illogical argument from evil? I mean, just kind of a dumb name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think what we're really getting at is with those kind of arguments is impossibility. Mm -hmm. The other kind of argument I'll call improbability. Now, these are not exhaustive categories, and if someone wanted to, they could nitpick the heck out of what I'm saying. I'm just trying to give sort of a, you know, 101 level introduction to the sure. concept. And so with a with an improbability argument, you're you're trying to establish that it's improbable that the thing in question exists. 
And so um, one way to do that is with um, uh, what uh, we'll call a Humean argument. And this is what Draper's arguments use. In, in modern, in contemporary literature, they're called evidential arguments, mm-hmm. but they're really Humean arguments, going back to David Hume. And so the basic idea is that you, you have a hypothesis, you have hypothesis one that says something exists like God, and then you identify a second hypothesis which is inconsistent with the first hypothesis. Um, and so most people will say, well, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about the existence of God, then H2 or hypothesis 2 would be God does not exist. But a humane argument is more subtle than that. It doesn't, it doesn't go directly for God does not exist, although it achieves that. Instead, it says, I'm going to identify a particular theory that is um, incompatible with the um, existence of God. And, um, and so um, Draper, when he first started writing, talked about the hypothesis of indifference, right. which says that neither the... Let me see if I can do this from memory. It's something like neither the nature <laughs> nor the existence um, sentient beings. Uh, of sentient beings is the result of uh, benevolent or malevolent. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so what's interesting about that hypothesis of, of indifference is what it says and what it doesn't say. Yeah. Right? It doesn't say that there's nothing supernatural. Um. Uh, so it's compatible with the existence of ghosts, Thor, Zeus, mm-hmm. Poseidon. Um, uh, it's even compatible with deism. Right. Um, because it doesn't say that the universe doesn't have a creator. But what it does say is that um, uh, there... Well, actually, no, it's in, incompatible with the existence of uh, deism because even deism by virtue of creating the universe would be, you know, something that's outside of it. Would, sure, right? sure. Uh, so it, it implies the causal closure of the physical. But um, what makes it incompatible with theism is this concept of indifference, right? Because regardless of how you define, um, you know, the word theism, um, I think virtually everybody agrees, at least when we use theism as shorthand for monotheism, that one of you know one of the things we mean when we say God is that there's this supreme being who pick your verb or pick, pick your word. It could be you know is omnibenevolent, is perfectly loving, is caring, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that being is not indifferent to the plight of sentient beings in the universe that he created if he created any. So if um, you know human beings exist. Um, a, a hypothesis of difference uh, would be that the being is, you know, different to his creation, his creatures. The hypothesis right. of indifference says, um, you know, maybe such beings exist, or maybe they don't. But if they do exist, they're completely indifferent. And so, that's the first step: is just identifying this rival hypothesis to yeah. theism. Um, it doesn't have to be full-blown atheism. It could just be something that contradicts one part of theism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it could be um, uh, there is no omnibenevolent being or no morally perfect being. It could also be, this is not what Draper does, but um, 
for the sake of argument, you can construct a rival hypothesis that denies omnipotence. Right. Um, point is, it's just something that is inconsistent with theism. And then once you have these two hypotheses, you can then make predictions about the world. And a lot of people um, uh, will say, but you know, you can't falsify theism because it's so plastic, you can bend it to accommodate anything. And I have a lot of sympathy for that objection, I really do. Mm-hmm. But um, um, I think that's kind of, you know, just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, I give up. I don't, I don't actually think that's true. Um, if you take the hypothesis of theism seriously, um, depending on how you define it, I don't actually think you need to define theism in a way, for example, that builds into the definition that God is the creator of the universe. Because part of you know, um, classical theism is the idea of the sovereignty of God. And, you know, so God, God was not forced by some external force to right. create the universe. It was, it's supposed to be a free choice of God. So it's right? consistent that right. God just, uh, there's a possible world in which God exists alone and never does anything. Yeah, no, it, there's no abstract objects, there's no material universe, there's no angels, it's just God, right? That's a possible world. Um, and so that's, uh, I tend to define theism in a way that, that is more like that. Same. But, um, so if you start with that, even then you can predict that it's probable that God would create something. Um, it doesn't mean, and I know I, who I'm saying this to, cause you famously defended an <laughs> argument from non-God objects, right. but, um, you know, my personal view is that, um, and this involves some controversial, you know, assumptions about value or axiology, but my personal view is that um, uh, uh, there is um, moral value or goodness associated with creating things. And so I would say it's not, in, you know, uh, the existence of the physical universe is not entailed by theism, but I actually think... If all, you know, if you were to abstract away everything else you knew and you, you just had in your brain, okay, theism is true, but somehow you didn't know that you existed or, or the universe existed, I think uh, it's antecedently probable on theism that a multiverse exists. Um, God would not just create a single planet, um, a, a single solar system, a single galaxy, or even a single universe. He would be more like an artist, a divine artist, who would create lots of paintings, um, where a painting is a a really crappy metaphor for a universe. (laughs) And so, you know, some of them would be better than others. Sure. And so, um, um, you know, what's the probability? It's not a hundred percent on, on theism, but it's not zero. Um, I don't even think it's 50%. I think it's higher than 50%. Mm. Um, I mean, that's one example. A, be- a much less controversial example, still controversial, but better, would be that um, uh, on the assumption that theism is true, you would predict that there is no gratuitous or pointless suffering. Um, uh, now, some people would say that pointless suffering is incompatible with the existence of God, and I'm very sympathetic to that, but I'm not going to make that claim today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, everything else held equal. If you, you know, were exploring, if you were, a, I, I don't know, if you were a, a, a robot that was completely ignorant of how you came into existence, but you were an artificial intelligence and you were loading, you know, modules into your computer memory about, you know, what's known about the world. And, um, you know, you learned, 
you learned that you know there's uncertainty about whether or not this being called God exists, um, and you're forming your Bayesian network to make predictions about the world as you gather data, because that's one of the ways machine learning works in artificial intelligence. Right. One of the things you as the robot or AI would do is say, okay, so I would expect if theism is true, that there would not be pointless suffering. And then you would start gathering um, you start gathering data as you load information into your memory as a computer, and you start uh, making all these observations about suffering in the world. Um, uh, if you somehow were able to know that pointless suffering didn't exist, then you would say, okay, that's, that's a surprise yeah. on the assumption that theism is true. That's not a surprise on the assumption that the hypothesis of indifference is true. Now, that's a, I use that example because it's easier to explain. I actually would never make an argument from pointless suffering because I think it's impossible to actually show that suffering is pointless. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so what Draper's argument does is he doesn't argue directly for the existence of pointless suffering. Instead, he compares... Um, the he, he looks at suffering from a moral perspective and a biological perspective. So if you say that suffering is pointless, implicitly what you're saying is there's no moral justification for allowing the suffering to occur. I don't, I don't think that there's any way to defend the claim that pointless suffering in that sense exists. But if you divide up suffering... If you look at suffering from a moral perspective versus a biological perspective, you can say, okay, we don't know for sure if any of the suffering is morally pointless, but we can say that it's biologically pointless. Yeah. And so Draper's argument from Pain and Pleasure talks about um, uh, grat biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure. There's pain and pleasure that's appropriate, right? If, if you um, uh, stick your finger or your hand over a campfire... And um, it's going to hurt. Um, uh, and that's biologically useful because um, if you kept your hand in there, you're going you're gonna to burn it. Um, you may disfigure it. Uh, worst case scenario, I guess you somehow catch on fire and die to death. Uh, or die from, <laughs> you know, you burn to death, right? Sure. Um, uh, but so that's, it's biologically useful to feel pain. And a frequent misunderstanding of, of arguments from suffering is that people think that the atheist is saying, uh, that there shouldn't be any suffering. That's that's not the argument. There's clearly mm. biological utility in having some suffering. There's also biological utility in feeling pleasure. Um, there's a good biological reason for why orgasms are are pleasurable because it provides a powerful incentive right. to engage in reproduction. Right. Mm -hmm. So. You know, pain and pleasure contribute to the biological goals of, of uh, survival and reproduction. But what about, you know, William Rowe's famous fawn that is caught in a forest fire that um, slowly, you know, burns to death? Um, uh, the suffering experienced by that deer does not, does not contribute to the, goal, the biological goals of survival and reproduction. Well, if the hypothesis of indifference is true, and, you know, it's just blind nature, blind nature doesn't give a crap about, you know, the suffering of a deer in a forest fire, and so, um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, the hypothesis of indifference does not predict the non-existence of biologically gratuitous pain. 
Right, right, right. Whereas the hypothesis of theism does predict the non-existence of biologically gratuitous pain. If theism is true, you need to have a really big coincidence. Not only does there need to be a biological reason for that deer to feel pain, but there needs to be a moral justification for allowing it to feel pain that doesn't contribute to biological goals. And that's a really big coincidence that naturalism or the hypothesis of indifference or any rival to theism doesn't, doesn't need. need. And so no. that's why that's such a strong argument against theism. And that is, uh, I mean, that I, I've, I've simplified things, but that in a nutshell is um, uh, Paul Draper's argument, evidential argument from pain and pleasure, which is really a humane argument from uh, pain and pleasure. And um, and that's how, you know, most of his, his arguments work is mm -hmm. by identifying you know, some rival hypothesis to theism and then showing that there's some empirical fact that we know about the world that is logically consistent with theism, but it's not what we would expect. Right, right, right. So at this stage, what you'll often get in reply um, is something to the effect of, well, theism does also predict, uh, given God's omnipotence and given our ignorance, that there's going to be a whole collection of facts Maybe they're biological facts. Maybe they are moral facts, and perhaps emphasizing the moral facts mm -hmm. um, that are connected to these things and uh, connected to the reasons God has to act. That um, on many of these kinds of evidential arguments prevent the kind of inference um, from uh, seemingly uh, unknowable reasons for allowing suffering to therefore there being unknowable reasons. Mm -hmm. um, this argument seems to sidestep uh, that kind of complaint. My snarky reply is, but not according to inductive logic or, or Bayes' theorem. Right. So um, uh, basically what, they're, what that response does is introduce an auxiliary hypothesis that says that God exists and God has unknown reasons possibly unknowable reasons mm -hmm. for allowing evil. Um, and so the response to that, is, the, 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 you know, the serious response to that is, sure, it's possible that God has unknown reasons for allowing, you know, the facts about good and evil that we know to be true. But it's also uh, possible and no less likely that God has unknown reasons for preventing evil. Um, and so there's, there's no reason to assume that the unknown reasons for allowing evil are, are more likely than the unknown reasons for preventing evil. Right. And so this appeal to the unknown cancels out. Um, I think that's a decisive rebuttal to, to that argument. Um, yeah. uh, and I, I've, I've yet to come across a, a good answer to that. And Draper has something he calls the weighted average principle, which just follows directly from the axioms of the probability calculus. There shouldn't be any controversy with that, but it mm -hmm. shows you the pattern of probability relations that would have to obtain. And the response that I just gave is just an English version of that mathematical theorem. Yeah. I, just, I put it in English words. But they would it, have to show some kind of fact intrinsic to theism that is has a bias toward toward the unknown facts that are relevant to the argument uh, well and specifically the you know that um, it's more like on the assumption that theism is true it's more likely that God would have unknown reasons for allowing evil 
than it is that he would have unknown reasons for preventing evil. And right. there just doesn't seem to be any way to defend that. Because exactly. the whole point of that line of thinking is that we're in the dark uh, uh, about God's reasons. We're not God. We're finite human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll never be God. We'll never even be, you know, one-tenth of God. So there's, you know, all this knowledge that, that God has that we'll never have. But, you know, if you take that seriously then why would you rule out the possibility that this all-knowing being has reasons that he knows that we don't understand for preventing evil? Mm -hmm. Why would you assume that that's less likely than the reasons for allowing evil? I would say the only reason you do that is if you're displaying cognitive bias and grasping at straws to avoid the force of an evidential argument from evil. The other thing I would say is, um, and I, I haven't found anybody in print make this argument uh, in this exact way, but if theists get to appeal to unknown moral justifications uh, to explain away facts about good and evil, then the naturalist, um, it seems to me, is equally entitled to appeal to unknown naturalistic explanations yes. to explain yes. away any kind of thing that science can't explain. So if the theist says, well, look at the origin of life, even a single-celled organism is super complex. It has you know, f- uh, uh, complex specified information that's irreducibly complex to mm-hmm. use, uh, who is it, Dembski or Behe's terminology. Um, and, you know, uh, scientists today can't say with confidence, uh, much less certainty, this is how life arose from non-life. Right, right. Uh, and so, you know, if we're going to play this, you know, cop-out where we can just appeal to the unknown, then, um, then I would just say, yeah, but, you know, we're just finite human beings in an indifferent universe. The universe doesn't give a crap about whether or not, you know, I, Jeff Louder, or you know, insert name of scientist here, is able to give a naturalistic explanation for how life started. Um, uh, We're left to figure it out on our own, and we've only been trying for about, you know, uh, what, since the 60s? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we haven't been trying that long, so it's it's really not that surprising um, that, you know, there are these unknown explanations. Or, you know, uh, if they run the fine-tuning argument, the universe is incredibly fine-tuned to allow, you know, yep. life to exist. Yep. Um, and you naturalists can't explain it. Well, I don't like that argument at all, but let's say, okay, you know what? You're right. I have absolutely no explanation. I'm not going to appeal to the multiverse. I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and say, you're right, we don't Should know. we expect to have an explanation but, is but, the next question. But, but should <laughs> we expect to have an explanation? I can just say, yeah, it's a complete mystery. Maybe there are these unknown scientific explanations we haven't figured out yet. If they can appeal to unknown explanations, Explanations for why God allows evil, then why can't the naturalist appeal to unknown scientific explanations for why things like uh, fine-tuning, uh, the origin of life on Earth, or consciousness, consciousness exist, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, how do you get consciousness from unconscious life? I don't know. Um, you know, we'll call it skeptical atheism, exactly. right? Right? <laughs> I, I don't know. There's these unknown explanations. Um, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I think we would probably agree that of... Uh, naturalistic or atheistic, more broadly, philosophers of religion, uh, the two most uh, serious uh, thinkers on this side would be uh, someone like uh, Paul Draper mm-hmm. and then like a Graham Oppie. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of compare and contrast a bit? Uh, I'd put Schellenberg, Schellenberg right up there as well. Schellenberg? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. fair. Um, 
at least with regard to Oppie and Draper, compare and contrast their, their, their uh, specific approaches? Well, um, I, I have enormous respect for both of them. Um, I've met both of them in person. Um, uh, I know Paul better than I know Graham. Um, Paul is not just a philosopher of religion, but he's also, um, you know, his one of his areas of expertise is the philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, it's not a coincidence that he uses Bayes' theorem um, or, you know, Bayesian type of thinking when he approaches these arguments. Um, um, you could reformulate all of his arguments as IBE or inference to the best explanation arguments, but he right. uses, uh, I've never actually asked him about this, but uh, I don't know if it's just he's more comfortable with it or if he thinks that uh, Bayesianism is intrinsically superior to IBE. That would be an interesting thing to ask him directly. But, um, you know, Bayesianism is really at the heart of what he does. And, and Draper is the, you know, basically he's the atheist Richard Swinburne. Mm-hmm. Graham Oppie, um, if I remember correctly, he has an undergraduate degree in physics. Um, I don't think he bills himself as a philosopher of physics in addition to a philosopher of religion. Um uh, that might be an appropriate second title for him though because he knows so much about about the science and the cosmology and that's why he's so particularly good at critiquing you know uh, uh, for example William Lane Craig on his Kalam cosmological argument the thing that comes to mind is it's interesting because when I when I first met the two of them um, they were both agnostics at that time Draper was agnostic and um, uh, I believe Oppie also identified as agnostic, and now they both identify as, as atheists. But, mm-hmm. you know, just as there are different kinds of, of atheists, there are different kinds of agnostics. And um, uh, Ted Drange has an article on the secular web on infidels.org where he talks about, um, uh, I think it's called Atheism, Agnosticism, and Noncognitivism. And in that article, he distinguishes between four different types of agnosticism. One of the types of agnosticism is the type that says the existence of God is inherently unknowable. It doesn't matter how much yeah. you learn, you will never know if God exists. Um, and I've always joked that, that kind of agnosticism is um, snarkily could be called militant agnosticism. I don't know if God exists, <laughs> and you, you don't, don't either. either. <laughs> um, um, but another kind of agnostic is what Drange called the data versus data agnostic. Mm-hmm. And that's where Draper was in the 90s and early 2000s. And when he wrote, you know, um, uh, uh, Confessions of a Practicing Agnostic mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in that uh, anthology on divine hiddenness, uh, edited by Paul Moser and Daniel Howard Snyder. Yep. Um, and so back then, Draper was saying, yeah, there's there's evidence for God, but there's also evidence against God, and I don't know how to weigh the two. The data's ambiguous, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he didn't say that they're exactly, you know, matched. He said, I don't know of a way to justify the claim that the evidence on one side is stronger than the other. Sure. And so in that sense, he would be what Drange would call a data versus data agnostic. Um, and I can't remember what the other two types of agnosticism uh, uh, Drange listed were. Oppie, um, when he was agnostic, and I, I believe he, for at least a decade now, he's been calling himself an atheist, but um, um, Oppie has um, always had this 
high standard for argumentation. In fact, it's my understanding that he's got a book coming out in the next year that will, um, you know, give his theory of, of what's required of, I don't know what the right adjective is, good or successful, you know, philosophical arguments. Yeah. But uh, a common complaint that, you know, uh, theists in particular, Craig, has made uh, against Oppie's objections is that Oppie sets the bar so high that it's virtually impossible for any argument about anything to meet Oppie's standards for a good argument. Um, and um, whether or not someone agrees with Craig about that particular, you know, on that particular point, I think it would be a fair thing to say that Oppie's standards for arguments are certainly different than Draper's, mm. um, and possibly they are higher than, than Draper's standards, I'm not sure. I also have not, in the stuff that I've read by Oppie, he clearly knows Bayesianism, right? Yeah. Um, he knows he knows everything um, when it comes to you know topics rel relevant to philosophy of religion, but he, he, his um, Bayesianism doesn't dominate the way that he seems to think or write about topics the way that it does Draper, and that's not a criticism of Oppie um, or a compliment to Draper. It's just that's a difference in their styles, Certainly. and so it you know it it it, it shows up differently. Um, uh, Oppie has a book out, I think it was published in the last five years, called The Best Argument Against God. Yeah. And so he talks about a lot of the kinds of evidence that Draper mentions, um, uh, but he doesn't directly interact with Draper's work. Um, in fact, I've, I've read most of what Oppie has written um, in books and journal articles. He's, he, I've seen Draper, you know, mentioned a couple of times in footnotes, but for the most part, he hasn't interacted with him. And, and Draper hasn't interacted with Oppie very much. So I would actually like to see the two of them engage because there were, I can't give you examples off the top of my head, but there were specific places in his book, The Best Argument Against God, where I thought that Oppie was being kind of deflationary to arguments similar to ones that Paul would defend. Mm. Um, um, and I remember thinking, yeah, but if, if, if we literally put Paul Draper's argument up on the table for consideration, and then even though you weren't specifically talking about Paul's argument, if we took the objections, Graham, that you just made yeah. and applied it to Paul's argument, I think that uh, Paul would have a strong rebuttal. And I don't know how you would overcome that rebuttal. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, Oppie wasn't specifically targeting sure, what yeah. Paul wrote. So that's why I say I, my wish is that the two would, would directly interact with each other. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, you know, who knows, um, depending on when Graham's book is finished, maybe it'll be finished fast enough for Paul to read it before his upcoming book on, you know, uh, the problem of evil gets published, and yeah. then and then he could he could respond and say, "Here's why my my <laughs> argument from evil meets Graham's you know high standards for an argument," Certainly. or conversely, why I did reject those standards. The the standards are too high. I, I I don't actually know what Paul would say because I haven't asked him and he hasn't addressed it in print. Certainly, certainly. Um, I apologize for that. No, you're fine. So what are some topics within um, philosophy of religion that you've been exploring as of late? 
So, you know, on Twitter, I, I, I identify myself as a, a philosopher of religion. And, and, you know, I say this frequently. I'm not a professional philosopher. It's just philosophy of religion is what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that um, uh, uh, I identify, what I really spend most of my time thinking about is not the philosophy of religion. It's actually metaethics. Okay. Um, philosophy of religion is what got me interested in metaethics, but it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And if you were to walk into my my home library and look at my you know personal collection of books, you would see I have way more books on metaethics than I do on the philosophy of religion. Interesting. Um, and I have a lot of books on the philosophy of religion, so that should tell you <laughs> yeah, just how no many books I have on on, on metaethics. So um, you know, I. Um, uh, for a long time was very dissatisfied with atheist responses to William Lane Craig's moral argument and um, felt the intuitive pull of um, uh, you know the, the the premise that objective moral values exist yeah. and I didn't I didn't like what I was finding especially again you know I go back to the 90s when I you know got started in all of this back in the 90s what resources were available? I don't know how old Eric Wielenberg is. He might have been in high school or junior high <laughs> right. in the 90s. But whatever, <laughs> however old he is, he hadn't written anything on, you know, God and morality. Certainly. So what was available was a bunch of stuff by Kai Nielsen. Um, Kai Nielsen, you know, was, uh, um, he's passed away now, but he was a well-known, you know, uh, philosopher uh, who was had a reputation for two things. Number one, atheism. Uh, and there were two Marxism mm-hmm. and um, didn't care for the Marxism but um, you know on the atheism stuff um, he had books that were published by Prometheus like Ethics Without God um, there was another one called Why Be Moral and um, you know I read them and I just I didn't find his responses to moral arguments satisfying mm-hmm. and so um, you know that got me thinking long and hard about it and what I learned was before I I knew what the words were I was basically a, a, an unwitting Platonist or at least I had half I had my foot halfway in the door of Platonism yeah I didn't know to articulate it as such but um, um, you know Craig's argument is about moral ontology and what what exists mm-hmm. and Kai Nielsen was all about coherentism and so he didn't a, yeah. he, he didn't give a crap about moral ontology in fact I have a, a little-known book by him on my bookshelf um, where there's a quote from him where he doesn't use the words I don't give a crap about moral ontology but it was about that blunt um, yeah, I yeah. wish I could find it but he was just chastising one of the contributors to the anthology he was the editor of the anthology but mm. I mean he was he wasn't rude, but he was being really harsh. Like, you know, basically, moral ontology is dumb. He didn't, he didn't <laughs> use those words, but that, I mean, that, that, sure. that, that's what I took away from it. And I'm like, okay, so that explains why I've never found his work useful um, when thinking about Craig's moral argument. And so I basically um, started working on my own response. And um, I have a, a paper that hasn't been published, but I, I, I read the paper on YouTube. Um, I shared a copy of that paper about Craig's moral argument with Eric Wielenberg before Wielenberg had published anything on the moral argument. Oh, wow. And he said that he thought that I was exactly right 
um, because um, uh, Wielenberg's first publication on you know God and morality was something like in defense of non-theistic, non-natural um, yes. morality or something. Yep. It was published in Faith and Philosophy. Mm-hmm. That was published after my paper. Now I want to make it very clear. I'm not saying Eric got his ideas, arguments, and objections <laughs> sure, from sure, me. Sure. I'm not saying that at all. Um, what I am saying is that I had independently arrived at many of the same ideas that he had. And yeah. So he, he read that and he's like, yeah, I think I, I saved the email. I should frame it. But he's like, you know, this <laughs> seems so right to me. I completely agree. Hey, by the way, take a look at this draft paper I'm, I'm, I'm working on. Wow. And so I got to read a draft of his paper before it was published in Faith and Philosophy. And, um, I mean, his paper is way better than mine. He's a professional philosopher. But it felt really good to know that I was on the right track. Music is by the Chicago-based band Casserole. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what real atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon, to which you can make a small recurring donation in support of the show. Special thanks Tyler Bimrose, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Pesci, Samara Rira, Kim Bushkovsky, Anthony Lawson, Jeff Rubinoff, and Brandon McCleary.